what I've learned through the hardest times is that just to be kind to yourself and you can set your expectations high, but you're not gonna hit it every day. And, and even on the days when you feel like not even getting out of bed, just do something. Just go forward, even if it's a teeny little bit and acknowledge that. Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners, episode 68. Our guest today is Jackie Naming-Jones, uh, famous for her role as Debbie in Manos, The Hands of Fate, which is probably one of the greatest slash worst horror movies ever created. Jackie gets into the reasoning behind that and why that's an important thing to demark in the opening segment of the podcast. But a lot of our conversation is around that fact that the movie was made from community supports and family members. Her dad, her mom, even her dog was part of the movie. And how originally it was created and disappeared and then showed back up years and years later on one of our favorite shows ever, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Jackie and I talk a lot about the movie, but we get more in depth about family dynamics and concerns with embarrassment from the title of Worst Movie Ever, Zero on Rotten Tomatoes, but really how she's turned the tables on that and has really embraced the aspect of being in the movie and what that meant for her and how that actually has really stoked her fire to find her own potential in what she does now and had created a stronger bond with her father and the people who enjoy the movie. So without further ado, here's Jackie Naman Jones. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. Our guest today is Jackie Naman Jones. Thank you so much, Jackie, for coming on today. This is a special treat for me, and, it, and I'm going to shout out my buddy Ian, who was the person who introduced me to Manos, The Hands of Fate, um, because I love it. I'm a huge geek when it comes to movies like that, and so I'm really excited to be interviewing you today so we can talk a little bit about that, but then also how you've embraced that part of your life and really turned it around into something that's been pretty awesome. So um, before we get started any further, do you think you could do a quick introduction of who you are and then maybe talk a little bit about Manos? Yeah, I was um, I, I was six years old when I was in this film in 1966. So you do the math. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my dad starred in it. He was in community theater and uh, they needed a child. And so I was available and they needed a dog. So my dog was in it. My, my mother made the costumes. My dad was also an artist. He did the sets and the props. And so being part of that film that became famous many years later as being one of the worst movies ever made was really more like a family film to me. <laughs> it is interesting because I, I know that you have, uh, you've written a book about the experience and, and really um, what it meant to you. And I know that you have talked about how it, it's a family film, but I, I'm also interested that, you know, being a six-year-old on a, a 
a set like that and i'm sure it wasn't you know like the set of now because of how low budget it was it probably was just like hey there's stuff around here let's use it um i'm wondering before we get into the meat of of everything if you could tell me a little bit about how that was ex how that experience was to see not only you know your mom doing multiple things and your dog in the film but also your dad mm -hmm. taking on this role of you know for anyone who hasn't seen the movie uh, the master who is this, you know, devil worshiping kind of dead undead uh, person, right? So for a six-year-old, I have a six-year-old at home and I oh. know that she would probably be super excited, but also confused. <laughs> and then you were also acting in the movie. So, you know, I'm wondering yeah. what that experience was for you. Well, um, we lived in El Paso, Texas. We had moved there from Fort Worth when I was four. And my parents were both um, very liberal people, um, educated. My mother was, uh, she became a teacher. My dad, uh, they both went to uh, TCU, Texas Christian University. And my dad became a minister. That was his first job, and uh, but he was always an artist, and my parents were just very open on um, on a lot of things. I mean, it was the '60s <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so when we moved to El Paso, my parents bought a house uh, in uh, South El Paso. We were just three miles from from Juarez, Mexico and the Rio Grande River. And uh, my dad was executive director of the local South El Paso Boys Club. So it was all Hispanic. We were the only non-Hispanic family in our neighborhood for one thing. And uh, my dad being a very liberal type of artist, most of his paintings were huge, huge paintings. I still have some of them, no place to hang them. But uh, a lot of his work was uh, very symbolic and a lot of nudes. He did sculpture. He worked in all mediums like uh, welding and, and uh, clay and just anything that came to mind. And so we were very unusual in where we lived in our family, in our neighborhood. And so I was kind of an outcast kid because I was different from everybody. But on the other hand, the kids, <laughs> they befriended me so they could get inside our house to see <laughs> what we had, you know, because we were so different than everybody else. So I grew up um just very open to ideas and 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 my dad was in community theater and he always played the lead roles and I remember that from a very young age in fact I just found a stack of his scripts that he worked from uh that's how I learned to read was I helped my dad run lines and he played wow roles of one of my favorite roles was when he played R.P. McMurphy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He, he played heavy roles, but, um, and I loved the theater. I, and I adored my dad. So I spent a lot of time sitting in his studio on a stool, watching him work. And, um, and I was such an observant child. So the theater, I knew inside and out. I knew every nook and cranny in the costume room, the light booth. And, and I was given a lot of freedom. So the opportunity to be on set worked really well for me as a kid. Because uh, I, if I had to be on set, I was there for the whole night or the whole session because my dad was my ride, right. you know? And the crew was like three people and it was out in the desert. It was filmed mostly nights and weekends. It took like maybe two weeks to film the whole thing and everybody had full-time jobs. 
So, um, and being the only kid on set, nobody was keeping an eye on me <laughs> and I do whatever I wanted. It's the perfect combination. Oh, for a six-year-old, it was pretty cool. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. I mean, it, so it sounds like you you really grew up with this really expressive family. And so, you know, it was just like another day being in this, but you also got to take advantage of, they were focused on other things, but you had this two weeks just with hours on an end with your dad doing this, doing these activities. And Yeah. I mean, if I got tired, I take a nap in the back seat of the, the, the car that's, you know, part of the eight minute opening scene <laughs> or or in the in valley lodge on the bed i mean the bedspread on the bed my great grandmother made you know most of the things in that film actually came from our house the doberman the master's dog that was our family pet shanka and uh so there were a lot of comforting wonderful things the yeah. guy john reynolds who played torgo was uh not well, everybody, pretty much all the men in the film were all part of the community theater. So there were people I knew beforehand. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Reynolds, who played Torgo, was a friend of my dad's. So he, he, was, he was such a sweet guy. I mean, during in between times and the sitting around times on set, uh, he often was the person that that would hang out with me. You know, we'd hang out in front of the Valley Lodge. He'd, he'd do prat falls. He, I don't remember what we talked about, but he'd tell me stories. And, you know, so it was a very comfortable environment for me. Yeah, that must have been. A- oh, oh, and then when they killed Peppy the Poodle. Yeah. <laughs> I remember how Warren, the director, that was his dog. That was his family pet. And Peppy didn't seem, he didn't, I don't think he really liked kids or something, but he was kind of hard to hold on to. But when they, I remember them pulling me aside to tell me that they were going to kill the dog. And they showed me the stuffed uh, animal, the the toy that they had bought and they tore it open and put stage blood on its guts and and they were letting me know making sure that I knew they were actually going to kill the dog and I remember kind of rolling my eyes and going yeah right like I think that's real (laughs) I like out of everything you're like ah this toy poodle's just not going to show good on on the film when we do it guys (laughs) See, see, I was already uh, <laughs> you were ahead of the from a filmmaker's point of view. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that juxtaposition of, of the Torgo character and John Reynolds, who, you know, unfortunately did pass away before the movie came out. Um, obviously, that must have been a good connection for you. And I'm sorry about that. But that that must have been very interesting because with your dad, uh, you, you can kind of see him play these roles. You saw him play so many roles that you can kind of disassociate. Oh, that's daddy's playing a role. Um, yes. And you were close with John, but that juxtaposition of the Torgo character and John must have been really interesting too. It's like, oh, okay, now we have to film and here's this Satar-like character just running around and doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and he loses his hand at one point and- Yeah. You know, he was not the nicest person to women by any means. And so it must have been really interesting to kind of absorb all of that stuff. I guess so. I mean, the play that my dad was in, that, that all the characters came together. Hal uh, Warren, who wrote, directed, and played the lead role of the father in the film, my dad in the film, uh, he was also part of community theater. So it was the play Henry IV and my dad played the lead role. And, and that play is not about King Henry IV. It's about a man who believes himself to be Henry IV and he's insane. And everybody around him just kind of helps him create this illusion. And uh, so I was already, you know, 
seeing how things could be so different. And right, okay. So you're already immersed. So it wasn't a huge stretch by any means. Oh, that. yeah, not at all. I mean, it was, uh, I, I knew they were acting. Uh, but how Warren was on that set, he was in that, that play and he looked around and he saw pretty much everybody he wanted, like uh, um, William Brian Jennings, who played the sheriff, he was in the play. Um, John Reynolds, who played Torgo, was in the play. And then the crew, Bernie and Bernie Rosenblum and, and uh, Bob Goodry were uh, crew members of the theater. So it was like pretty much everybody, well, everybody but the women were all in this play. So I, I, was, I was really quite comfortable with it. And, and with John and, and what John's wearing, like I said, my dad did the sets and the props and costumes. I mean, they were, my family was involved in every part. So what John is wearing is my dad's welding coveralls. And the hat is my, was my dad's desert scavenging hat. And my dad would take me out into the desert and we would, we'd find, he'd find some old, found some old silver mines. We would go get turquoise or he'd find abandoned shacks and scavenge all the wood to create new projects and build furniture and all these things. So, but the, the legs that John Reynolds was wearing was, um, fencing wire and uh, upholstery foam. So I was in the studio when my dad built those as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so nothing was a surprise. You were just no like, surprises. Okay, all, all yeah. Time. But that must have been good too, is like your the neighborhood kids, they could have just waited until this was being filmed and see everything that was inside of your house up on this <laughs> Well, no, I mean, that wasn't something... I don't know, just, I was in second grade. And actually I wasn't even going to a local school at that time. My mother was a teacher on the, the military base, Fort Bliss in El Paso. So uh, I was going to school there at the time and it just wasn't, I was just kind of a introspective, shy kind of kid and, I don't remember it being anything that I ever talked about to anybody until much later after the film disappeared, it showed and it disappeared and years went by and then I started looking for it and it was nowhere. Right. Cause it, it showed one night and then it just kind of disappeared. So it seems like you and your family just continued on with your life and then. Oh Yeah. Nobody really talked about it. I, I mean, the local entertainment writers in the newspaper, uh, Joan Quorum, she was one of the top writers for cultural things in El Paso at the time. And uh, she loved my dad and several other people. <laughs> they, um, there weren't very many articles written about that humiliating evening at the premiere. Everybody just kind of escaped the theater as quickly as possible. And I don't recall anybody talking about it, not that I would have, but um, it was just something they wanted to just, everybody wanted to move on from. Right. But for a kid and it being such a, it ended up being, like some of the best memories of my childhood being with my dad and and being part of this thing and uh not being able to find it was that's when I started telling friends stories as I grew up and I got into high school and and I just preserved it all in my head because I really thought I'd never see it again I searched for it at film libraries and uh university libraries this is all pre-internet right yeah and then i gave up i just told people stories now and then and that was it and then 27 years old later 
my dad calls me out of the blue and says, you'll never believe what I just saw on television. <laughs> Did you ever, so, so for people who are listening to this, um, you know, that story is kind of funny and I want to get in, into that, but did you ever figure out what happened to the film and how it made its resurgence or? Well, I, from what I understand is um, it uh, was owned by Emerson Films and it, it got on a circuit. It hit some drive-in theaters around Texas. It, other people have told me over the years it showed up here and there on that late night cable TV, you know, three o'clock in the morning kind of stuff. And, and uh, the drive-in theater circuit, it was like the third film on horror night on Saturday <laughs> night. And it was the one that was shown to get people to leave, you know, go home <laughs> already. Get <laughs> yourself, get out of here. Get, your, get out of here <laughs> yeah but other than that it just disappeared and then since then I mean many years after History Science Theater found it in uh, I think it was 2010 or 11 uh, a young man Ben Solovey who was very interested in film restoration he was looking he bought some films on eBay. He was living in Los Angeles and he found some films from, a, I think it was a grandson of Emerson Films was selling a, a box of films and he saw one that he really wanted and was gonna buy it. And the guy says, no, nah, you gotta take the whole box. <laughs> so he got this box in the mail and he goes through it and I, it's just miraculous. He actually knew what he was looking at and he had found the original work print that went through the camera in 1966. And it had the original title on it, which was Fingers of Fate. Fingers of Fate. <laughs> and um, yeah, so then he did a Kickstarter. He raised some money because he wanted to restore it in the same way that any classic Hollywood film would be restored, frame by frame. And he raised $48,000 to restore Manos. And uh, I was lucky enough to go with him to several shows, uh, one in Chicago, I got to go to El Paso and uh, it was shown at the Plaza Theater, which was right across the street from the original Capri Theater where it showed in 1966. Oh, wow, that's awesome. And it was only because the Capri no longer existed, but um, yeah, it's, it's just been an am amazing thing. Uh, this, this film has uh, inspired so many projects. You know, it's known as one of the worst films ever made it's been taught in film school as everything not to do <laughs> and uh and yet it's inspired so many really talented projects and we've just enjoyed every minute of it and met the most amazing creative people and been part of a lot of awesome things I mean I'm an artist I, I've been an artist my whole life and, uh, you know, my biggest problem is getting, getting drawn in so many different directions. I, I have no idea how to define myself. I do a lot like my dad. I'm yeah. a lot like him that way. Well, I mean, you grew up in, in this really intentionally modeled, amazing environment where you saw people helping out you saw people taking on multiple things the creative endeavors and I, I imagine that imprinted on you pretty well and you yes. know Tachi I think that's a really important part of childhood right like a lot of people could look at the film and say well you know this is kind of a weird environment to get brought up in on this movie about like this undead master and Torgo and all this horror stuff that goes with it 
but I think it's actually from what hearing you talk about, it sounds like it was very informative and it was a really awesome environment to cultivate that creative side of you. Whereas yeah. you know, if you didn't have it, who knows what passions you would have followed through on. Yeah, I think, you know, it's in my soul. I always, I would have been an artist in one way or another, but certainly these, um, these experiences uh, led me to believe that if you can think of it, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, anything <laughs> is possible. Well, just, I mean, just look at it. You know, they, you film this in 66, it disappears for 27 years, yes. it re-emerges through Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is which in itself is such a long shot, right? And the yes. fact that your dad's watching that and sees the movie come up and then it leads <laughs> yeah. to all and these other that. things, right? He and just then, happened to be a Mystery Science Theater fan and watching it one Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, it's a, taking a nap. He actually woke up because he heard some familiar music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, and so like just that that ride of the film and then what you kind of alluded to afterwards of once that kind of came back and people were looking at it in this resurgence, it's everything lining up. It just solidifies what you're saying is like, why not chase these passions? You can do these things and, you know, who knows where they might go, but have fun and be in that moment and be mindful of those things. Yeah. And I have to tell you, um, this is one of these things uh, in life that um, my dad was suicidal growing up and there was a lot of fear from me of what was going to happen with him. And uh, so all these dark times. And then when he remarried, his wife, after a few years, decided I wasn't part of the family. And so we were, we were split for many, many years. And, and when Manos came out into the world, and it started getting attention and I started meeting people and opportunities started coming up. Some, for some reason, I don't know why, and they're both gone now, so I can't ask the question, but my stepmother decided that if, if something was Manos related, my dad and I could get together. And we did, I mean, in the end he, literally lived half a mile from we. We all moved to a town of a thousand people, <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. it's small. And um, so my dad and I would get together at, at one of my friend's houses and it became like this neutral, you know, Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if it was Manos related, and so I just really seeked out these opportunities and I got my dad involved in anything that was possible when I, when I produced and did, wrote Monos Returns, we got him in it and he's been part of several things and there's still a project that I hope will be, uh, finished soon. I mean, it, it was filmed years ago and uh, my, my friend who created it is, uh, I don't know, he just wants it to be so perfect. It's like, just let it. <laughs> just let it be, let it be what it is. Yeah. It is pretty perfect, but you know, a video of my dad and, and we've done a lot of projects together. And, uh, you know, in the film, one of the lines is about the master approving. Does the master approve? Well, I loved being, I loved going to events and talking to fans and relaying messages to my dad and from my dad and, and always letting people that the know that the master approved because <laughs> he always did. He got such a kick out of it. He had the sense of humor that I do about it. It's like, if you can't be the best, make the most of being part of the worst. It's, 
And it's just a miracle in itself. This, this film is so loved and the mystery science theater people, I just couldn't have planned my life better in terms of this because I was a huge fire sign theater fan in the seventies and in school and, and then mystery science theater is very similar to that in terms of the fan base and the level of intelligence and creativity of people. And um, so I just feel like they're my tribe, you know, this right. is my family. And I just, people ask me, you know, how, how, how do I embrace this, you know, being part of something that's known as something so bad, but, but it's, it's known in that way so lovingly. And I didn't understand that for many years, but I think I'm beginning to. And it's that people really get the earnestness of this film. The people got together to make this thing and did the best job they could. And there was talent behind it, but you know, it, it's like, it takes a lot of different things to make a film. You can have yeah. a talented actor and, and a, a not so great director. I mean, there's just, it, it takes a pretty amazing combination of things to make a good film. And, uh, but people get the earnestness of it. And the basic storyline's not bad. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like when you look at it, there've been, um like a lot of movies follow that basic storyline of like okay here it is so it's, it's not far off base on that by any means yeah, yeah. a lot of I, better movies <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you know, some some may be worse like when you talk about the movie i think you have to view it exactly like you're talking about it's like okay for when it came out what it was trying to do if you can hold that space as you watch the movie it's an enjoyable movie to watch like i you know really <laughs> Well, enjoyable if you have that, if you go into it, right? Like, so I went with into the, it with my buddy Ian. We're like, hey, we're just going to spend some time watching this movie and, and spend some time seeing what it's about and not judging it or holding it to some standard, but just really being present and watching it. And that earnestness does come through. And yeah, there's some one-liners and, you know, parts that don't hold up, but it is a fun watch, you know? Yeah. I watching it. Yeah. Well, if you watch it again, when the master, well, first, you know, for budget, uh, the, there's a pile of dirt in the living room that's Torgo's bed. And uh, that was done because of budget. They actually brought a pile of dirt in from outside. <laughs> and the judge who owned the property, there was an article somewhere where he was wondering why there was dirt left in the living room because you know it was never cleaned up and uh but there's a scene where my dad is holding his arms out in the living room and Torgo's over here and uh you can see the beer bottle <laughs> down um on the the fireplace and um that was the crew getting frustrated and just testing how Warren's powers of observation. <laughs> and because film was so expensive and it was going through a camera and um, there really wasn't much in terms of extra film. Right. Just about everything was used, but uh, Bernie and Bob, they were best friends too. So that, and they were jokers. They played poker every Saturday night. So they had a, they had their sense of humor and they were messing with Hal for sure. But the, the beer bottle stayed in. And then uh, when my dad's holding up Torgo's burning hand, you'll see the can of lighter fluid right behind him, <laughs> which was a mistake, but yeah. it, you know, things are left in. I mean, there was a Starbucks cup in Game of Thrones in one scene. So, you know, oh, not, not everyone gets yeah. away clean, you know, at least you're embracing it's, it. That's hard to do. I mean, you, especially with a crew of two, you got yeah. two people, you don't have any extra people watching for those details. Yeah, but I, I think there's a, 
a beautiful symmetry of what you're talking about with, you know, when we first started talking about how you were filming with your dad and how much you enjoyed it and, and this beautiful connection it fostered. And then also how this movie towards, you know, 30 years in the future became this connecting point to restart this relationship again with you. I think that's a re really, you know, sad, but also very beautiful symmetry in how a movie that's ranked, what is it at 0% on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah. Oh like yeah. That. I don't think it has any point. 0% <laughs> yeah, on Rotten Tomatoes, but there's this connecting factor. And I think, I think that's awesome to hear for, from you that, that it was able to do that and you were able to to bleed into this bigger uh, connection of community from it. And because if I, I'm a huge geek, you can probably see the Captain America shield behind oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> but so like, I'm no stranger to going to cons or anything like that. And there's a huge community around some of the stuff like, like this. So I, I love that you were able to kind of make a, a, a sequel to it and all these other ventures in it. And I think, um, your friend who's making that other movie, you just summed up this idea that I think is also really beautiful. Is this, you know, um, doesn't matter what the outcome is. It's, it matters what that intention is and that that intention and that love that goes into it. That's where the memories are, right? So yeah. your dad didn't seem like he cared one bit that it, it was on Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of being a spoof for people. He was just tickled pink that was like, hey, there it is. There it's it cool. is. You know? No, he loved it. He, he loved it. Yeah, he loved everything about it. And since then, I got to be on Frank and Trace's show, The Mads Are Back in December. And, uh, and I've met them twice in person. I've met Joel. Joel actually wrote the foreword to my book, Growing Up with Monos and Hands of Fate. And I'm very proud to say my book is four and a half stars on Amazon. So it's a it's pretty awesome. damn good book about a bad movie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, the life of this just extends from that love and that purity that went into that oh, honesty. Uh, yeah. The projects, I mean, there's Mono's Hands of Felt, the puppet <laughs> theater in Seattle, Washington. There's been two stage productions that are just hilarious. I got to be part of one of them because it was in Portland and I, I lived just 70 miles from Portland. Oh, and, uh, oh, so in the original film, it was shot silent, so all the voices were dubbed, and all the women, including my child girl, was dubbed by one woman. So, uh, of course, nobody told anybody that. <laughs> and of course was, not. You just hear someone else's voices coming out of your mouth when you're watching. Oh, it's horrifying. That was really, that was really bad. But... <laughs> <laughs> so the stage production that was done in Portland when they learned that I lived close by, asked, they asked if I wanted to be involved. So I got to um, hang out with the cast and crew and hang out in Portland for the couple weeks of the production. And I got to play my own voice from the sound booth. My character on stage was played by a doll. <laughs> so they carried her around and the Doberman was played by a uh, it was made with felt and cardboard and it was on little tiny wheels and they rolled it across the stage where it'd fall over every now and again <laughs> but my character was carried around and I got to be the middle-aged woman voicing myself which was just a blast but uh, there's trading cards, there's uh, Nintendo style video game, there's books, films. It's just, it's incredible the things that have been inspired by this film. And the people that I've met, Elvira, Cassandra Peterson, oh, wow. had it on, she did it on her show. And a few years ago, we were both guests at the same, um, comic-con or convention and uh i i snuck over there to meet her during a break and and i didn't know how it's going to go over she had a long line of people 
getting her autograph and I snuck around the end of the table and I crouched down and I tapped her and I just told her real quick who I was. I splurted it out before her bodyguard could get a hold of me. <laughs> and um, and uh, it was so funny. I'm there. She looks down at me and all of a sudden I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm Debbie. I'm the little girl from Miles to Hands of Fate. My dad was the master. I just started blurting this stuff out. And all of a sudden, this recognition came into her eyes and she goes, stop the line. <laughs> and, uh, and then she pulled me up and we just had this wonderful conversation. And she asked me all these like really great questions about behind the scenes of the film. She was really interested and, you know, I just... Things like that, just yeah. wonderful memories and wonderful things that have come from this. Yeah, I love that. So many people tell me, you know, I talk to people and I go, it's not the worst movie. I said, I know that. I've seen worse. I was in worse. I was an extra in The Curse of Bigfoot. That's <laughs> on, oh, God, that film's way worse. Mono. Have to check that out. I'll yeah, call e, I'll call Ian up and maybe we'll watch it together. Yeah, hey, so I'm in the classroom scene. <laughs> let me write that down. The curse of big. Okay. I I love the redemption arc of you getting your voice back in that production and <laughs> how that production was very much like this is this is it. Like we don't have to have this crazy production of how we do it. This story. We can have a, a felt dog roll across the stage and fall over. We can have a doll because this is the embracing of, of that energy that we was kind of put in. Yeah, and that's a fine line because, you know, you see it in other films, bad films, where somebody goes to recreate it in parody and it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, there's 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 a way of making fun of yourself or making fun of something that is still very honest and very earnest mm. and and in a way it's a, a celebration of the original project but i've seen i've seen some things that people have come up with that you know <laughs> maybe not so good yeah but uh, it, it sounds like it captured that energy really well and instead of like punching down and kind of you know, making fun of it, it embraced it and incorporated that energy into the production. Yeah. And those were all very talented people. Brian Koch, who created that, is uh, he's a musician. And and uh, some of the women that were in it are part of the burlesque community in Portland. And <laughs> through that, uh, we had a couple of those women in Manos Returns as our wives. Nice. And, um, you know, just the people I've met, the talent is remarkable to me. I, you know, my, my sister, I say this like every podcast, but my sister makes fun of me all the time when she listens because I say, ah, I love that. And it's because I <laughs> genuinely get really amped up about having these kind of conversations and really lo looking at what you're saying is one, I love, I love watching the movie. So for me, it's kind of a geeking out as we talk about it. And then two, it really is this cool concept of, of how generative things can be if you embrace and turn towards them instead of running away from them. Because you could have very yeah. easily been like, I don't want this part of my life to, to define me. I'm out of here. I'm not going to embrace it. But instead, you turn towards it with your dad and really created this, this really cool community around it. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. I like I said before. I I feel really fortunate. I feel really blessed that I've had this opportunity. I I was talking to my daughter-in-law a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember who it was, but it was an actor, somebody who had uh, found their voice and found their life through a really odd direction. And I remember I was standing there, and I go, "What in?" odd thing to be known for <laughs> and I go hello <laughs> that's pretty weird you know 
So I have a couple of questions I'm going to throw out there for you is how I, how I end the podcast. But um, before I do, I have one, one question for you, because I, I think I was in preparing for today, I was reading some articles and I, I got to watch you read the um, introduction to your book on YouTube, which I thought was great, a really good primer. And then I think I read somewhere that you and your dad were probably the only ones who understood the title of the film because you were around so, so much of Spanish speaking people that you were able to kind of say, oh, I understand what manos means. And other people in the production value didn't really understand that it was hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, actually, everybody who was part of it would have known because okay. we're all in El Paso, you know. Yeah, so El Paso is hugely Hispanic community. And um, but uh, let's see, I think it was the the very original title was Lodge of Sins. And then once Hal hired my dad, I mean, nobody really got paid, but, um, and, and my dad was gonna do all the props and artwork. Most of the hand sculptures and things were artwork he already had. My dad specialized in hands and, um, and he and my mom designed the robe. So during a production meeting, I guess Hal changed it to Fingers of Fate, which sounds kind of like a laughing, yeah. you know, <laughs> type of, you know, comedy. But my dad suggested in a production meeting to call it Manos, the Hands of Fate, because of all the hand sculptures and, um, it, it passed but yeah I, I just always thought that was funny because it's redundant of yeah, course one else meeting hands but the other thing that people don't know is our dog Shanka the Doberman his name Shanka my my family is uh, registered with the Osage tribe and mm -hmm. um, Shanka is not the original way to say it but it came from a word that basically means black dog that runs in the night <laughs> so it means dog shanka the dog and monos the hands so maybe that can be another spinoff is shanka the dog of fate. <laughs> yeah I, I had a shanka it was funny i mean he died last march at 13 but uh my one. last dog was shanka named after that dog but he was he was a um a Chihuahua American Eskimo mix, very different type. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, damn you, internet, for giving me the wrong facts, but I love that it led into that story because I thought that would that was awesome to hear. The What, the, the internet was wrong? I know, I, I can't believe that my <laughs> my trusty internet let me down. <laughs> crazy. Um, <laughs> So the two questions I always end the podcast with are, and you can answer them in either order, but the first is, uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? And then the second is, what do you believe your true life superpower is? Hmm. Wow. Okay, if I could have any superpower, oh, superpower, it would be, I emotional about it but um I just I'm I'm such an empathic person and I just it's that's one of the reasons I think I chose to live in in a town of a thousand people but I became very involved you know I mean I was on the school board I ran the arts council you know I I want to see the betterment of society and people so my superpower would be to 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 give people that spark to find their true power that's what my superpower would be awesome. and uh what was the other question because i think the answer is almost the same no. <laughs> uh what like uh canonized kind of superpower from comic books what what superpower would you want if you could have any 
whoo, comic book type superpower. I just want people to be happy, but not in a druggy way. <laughs> okay. That's you know, fair. like in an honest way. I, I just want people to find their core, their happy place. Yeah, I love that. Because if we can do that, we can pass it on. and. Yeah, we, we can kind of be generative to the future. I mean, this is the whole point of the podcast and the name of Break the Chains, Find Your Flame is that that push to find your own inner potential and kind of use that to radiate and connect with others. And that's why we have people like you come on and have these that's conversations. Wonderful. So um, any last words of advice or anything that you want to kind of put out there for listeners or, you know, boil down some of your experiences into like a life lesson for them to take away from this? Yeah, I mean, I've, it's been a rough year. Uh, it's been a rough couple years for a whole lot of people. And uh, what I've learned through the hardest times is that just to be kind to yourself and, and uh, you can set your expectations high, but you're not going to hit it every day. And, and even on the days when you feel like not even getting out of bed, just do something. Just go forward, even if it's a teeny little bit, and acknowledge that. I love that. And we can even bring it back into your experience and say, you know, even if what you do is ranked a zero on Rotten Tomatoes or the label of the worst movie ever, you can still get enjoyment out of that push forward and and doing that thing and seeking it out. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. I'm so honored to have you on and, and so great to have this conversation. And thank you for letting me geek out a little bit on, on my oh. nose with you. <laughs> Well, thanks, Steve. It was it was really wonderful talking with you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at thepromethianproject.org If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends, like our posts on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen and remember that the most important step is always the next one. <laughs>